Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trusha, the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the Lex Rex Institute and a constitutional attorney, though I will not be speaking in that capacity today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of really? the opinions expressed are the yes, really, and all oh. of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, you can visit us online at www.lexrex.org. Should give the HTTPS along with that too, just to make David that much more annoyed. No, you shouldn't. Yeah, don't do that. No. You probably you probably still put two spaces after a period too, don't you? Uh, anyway, I take the fifth on that one. <laughs> As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. And today, now that more issues than ever are considered political, we believe it's especially important to distinguish those. Yeah, our name is Lex Rex. That's Latin for the law is king, because that's the only king we got in America. You know, other countries, they have kings. America, we don't. Our only king is the Constitution. So we're dedicated to upholding that. We've got one big topic for this episode. We're going to be continuing our series on the early stages of the American Republic and the French Revolution. But before that... Anyway, before we jump into that Summer of the Revolutions issue, I did want to talk about one of our new cases. So this is actually a case that's been gestating for quite a while. We just filed our lawsuit today. Our lawsuit includes a petition for a writ of mandamus because the Los Alamitos Public School District well, I'll give you a little bit of context here. Every year, Los Alamitos Unified School District sends its fifth grade students to what they call an outdoor science camp. And the past you know, science camp, you've learned about sciencey things, you know, outdoor things about plants, trees. I don't know, whatever. I'm not a scientist. Whatever, whatever science happens outside, you learned about yeah. that. And with, with fifth well, graders. This year. Um, so, you know, probably with fifth certain, graders, you know, yeah. a certain set of things. You probably aren't going to be like taking core samples or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But. Something. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> Although when I was in fifth grade, we learned about roller coasters and learned about, you know, different forces of physics and then just road roller coasters. I'm not sure that we actually learned much from that at all. Yeah. But anyway, science camp, they're supposed to learn about science. Only this year, unbeknownst to the parents of the Los Alamitos Unified School District, the science camp they selected was really more of a, uh, how would you put it, well, David? Well, as we've learned in the course of this case, the, the company that ran this camp mainly specializes in running sort of like adult oriented LGBT retreats. So it was, a, yeah. seemed like an odd fit there. You know, we certain things that came out about the way they handled it didn't sit quite right. But you, you can imagine, yeah. but you can imagine the sort of, if, if they're a pro LGBTQ group, if they're, if their objective is educating people about LGBTQ issues, a bunch of fifth grade girls uh, from Orange County were not necessarily familiar with or had previously been exposed to some of the ideas that they were taught here. I guess you could argue that there's science of a sort, uh, I'd, certainly not what yeah, the parents well, thought and, they were getting into when they sent their daughters here. Yeah, you know, but, in, maybe they did some science stuff too, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, based on the, the records that we've seen. It, but, it doesn't it doesn't sound like they did a whole well, lot, but they you know. might have. But if they, anyway, they were exposed to all sorts of things. It, 
gender identity pronouns, uh, they, them pronouns. From what I understand, a large proportion of the counselors here identified with themselves with they, them pronouns. You know, they, they were confused. Like, are you a girl? Are you a boy? Well, I'm neither. Let me tell you about gender identities. Yeah. And you, you can imagine, you know, this would be fairly disturbing to people of particular political views. And anyway, it was, ended up being very disturbing to a lot of the girls who were at this camp. But to make matters worse, it's an overnight camp. And of course, fifth grade students have to be housed with counselors in the dormitories there. So these girls who had just been exposed to these ideas about preferred gender pronouns, so on and so forth, ended up being housed in dormitories with counselors of indeterminate gender. Yeah. Now, some parents might have been fine with this. I don't know. Some of the kids might have been fine with this. I don't know about that either. What I do know is that a lot of kids were not fine with this, and when the parents found out, boy, were they not fine with it. And really, I can't say that I blame them at all, because people who are not exposed to these ideas, it's obviously going to be very traumatizing to hear that the person who's in your room might be a man yeah. if you're a fifth grade girl. You know, because they don't know. That's They had no idea. So parents ended up finding out about this quite a bit later, actually. You know, the daughters are so traumatized, they don't talk to the parents about it for quite a while. Uh, my client, the, the lead plaintiff in this suit, we have several clients in this suit, but one of the lead plaintiffs, uh, she doesn't find out about it till 10 days after it took place because her daughter was so traumatized. Uh, at that point, parents start trying to put pressure on the school district to tell them, you know, why did you pick this place? Why did you think this was a good fit for outdoor science camp? And if you thought it was a good fit, why didn't you tell us the sort of camp it was? We thought it'd be like it was in the past. Yep. School basically stonewalls them. Right. You know, among other things, they want to know where our daughters housed with biological men. School tells them that they are legally barred from answering that question yep. and then stonewalls on it for about a month. Although at the end of that month, they actually do answer and they say, no, we're pretty sure that none of the girls were housed with biological men. So if it was illegal to say something, I don't know how the heck they end up saying it later. It sure sounds like just sort of an excuse for hiding things from parents. It might be worth teaching these sorts of issues to school kids, but certainly not without parental notification and consent, which is what happened here. So we requested a number of documents from the school district. They have given us responses to those document requests that are woefully inadequate. We know for a fact there are documents responsive they did not produce. So we have filed a lawsuit against them in state court, and we are going to make them answer for what happened and provide an account of why they chose this institute and then seek damages for the harm that they've caused to these girls and to the parents by failing to notify yeah. them. And, you know, I want to underline, too, the, the, the reason why this is an important issue to us as an organization is really not to do with the sort of specific political angle or, or whatever else that's going on here. It's, it's about the rights of parents to understand what's going on at their kids' schools and the duty that schools have to be open with parents. You know, legally, they, they yeah. in fact, do have to answer your questions as long as they're not improperly disclosing private information, that sort of thing. You can, you know, we've talked about PRAs Look, before. If the public has a right to access records of public institutions, and that's the fundamental legal issue at play here. Yeah. I mean, there are other, there are probably other legal issues down the pike as yeah. well, including, you know, negligence, deprivation sure. of parental rights, and you know, all sorts of things like that. But at this point, this stage in the dispute, we just want to yeah. know what happened and why. Yep. And they're refusing to tell us that. So that's what we're trying to obtain. You know, David's right. It's not about the particular thing they were teaching. If there'd been a, an outdoor science camp where the main thing that they were teaching about was how guns work, and they were putting guns in the hands of kids and kids were using those guns. And then group of parents told us, you know, we're not comfortable with our kids using guns. 
That'd yeah. be a lawsuit that we would bring too. So right. it's nothing about the political angle here. Yeah. Anyway. You know, it's personally, they, they could be teaching kids stuff that I think they ought to teach kids, but parents have a right to determine whether, if their kids are being taught something, and certainly to know what's being taught to their kids. Yeah, so, and especially... You know, it's not a matter of agreeing or disagreeing with the content. Yeah, and especially in, in a situation like this where they were given... Because uh, I've seen the information that the school provided before this. They were given pretty minimal information about what was going to happen, and sending your kids away for an extended period of time without their phones, that was part of it, too. They couldn't contact yeah. their parents. You yeah, know, they, they were very uncomfortable and had no means of contacting their parents. Yeah, and, you know, a, a parent has every right to have, you know, as much information as they would like about that sort of situation. So what we've done is is we're actually taking this case free of charge for our clients, but that doesn't mean free of charge for us. It costs us right. quite a bit to be able to bring cases like this. And if we don't get contributions from you guys, we'll probably go bankrupt and not be around all that long. <laughs> but, you know, we, we do count on the generosity of the public, and we know that people care about cases like this. And... We count on people to support parental rights in an educational context like this. So we have set up a Give, Send, Go page where you can donate to our campaign. The URL for that page is, uh, let me find it here one second. Oh, that's not too useful. Uh, it's a Give, Send, Go slash G3 PCB question mark share SMG equals display. So that really easily memorable URL, you can donate to our campaign. We will change that URL to something much more memorable. Maybe you know, Give, Send, Go slash Los Al or something well, like that. But anyway, we'll link it in the description. You can access that Give, Send, Go page. Really, we are counting on contributions for this one. That's going to be funding the entirety of this case. And there's going to be a lot of legal work involved on this. So, yeah, yeah. It's, we're counting on the generosity of the community. For, for the record, just the G3 PCB part will get you there. So, um, but either oh, way. Well, <laughs> either so then GiveSendGo.com slash g3 pcb yeah not not super memorable anyway and we will definitely provide a link and maybe we'll be able to change that to something catchy we'll probably later. change it <laughs> but anyway. all right so that's all for that that so i want to let you guys know about that that was just filed earlier today so that is a huge lawsuit it's actually why this podcast is coming out a little bit late because we record these ahead of time and I didn't want to make an announcement prematurely. So we apologize yeah. if you're listening to this later than you usually do. But without further ado, we do want to get through our material we have for the day. We've got an exciting program for you guys. Next, we have on our agenda how the Constitution of the United States addressed the failings of the Articles of Confederation. David, didn't we already talk about this? Well, we talked about the failings of the Articles of Confederation, but in, you know, I'll sort of... Uh, and because I love the Constitution, I just couldn't help but talk about how it did it better. Yes, basically. But anyway, to sort of uh, peel back the curtain a bit here, the, we've been trying to keep the, the sort of the episodes about France, the episodes about America sort of symmetrical with each other. So the last time in each of those episodes, we looked at the first attempt that they those countries made to get a new political order in place after upsetting the apple cart, you know, in our case, separating ourselves from the crown of Great Britain, in the French case, you know, killing their king, a little different. But oh, now look, we're just, look. Wait, wait. Thank you. Yes, that, that is indeed what happened. That could very well be recording from the death of King Louis. I don't know whether they have I think you're a little not. I think you're a little uh, uh, early on that one for the invention no, no, of recording sound. I don't think sound. so. I don't think so. It's all it's all, no? you know, it's all the same, right? Back in the day. Wasn't it Edison that invented that? Was he I don't think he was around no, then. No, 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 no. I think it was actually Dr. Guillotine. Dr. Guillotine but, did it. All right. <laughs> anyway. Wait, he was a doctor that invented the guillotine? Actually, I found this out because I, I mentioned this on one of the past episodes. I am currently reading a book about the French Revolution. 
His name was actually... Oh, there's another point of feedback that we got, David. You're supposed to mention the name of the book when you say that you're reading oh, something. Oh, right. I think... Okay. Uh, oh, shoot. My Kindle's not with me. It's like the Oxford History of the French Revolution. Something... I forget. I'll, I'll find it for next time, or maybe we'll put it in the description. You put but, it in the description. Yeah. That's, anyway. we, we want people to be able to read that along with you, David. That's that's part of the fun. All right. All right. It's, it's a little dry, so people looking for a sort of gripping narrative history aren't going to find but it. But that was there, the other it, feedback we got, is that you're boring. <laughs> yeah. We got a no, lot I, of comments saying that, David. I'm, I'm aware of this. Uh, first yeah, of all. What, our, what our listeners don't understand is that's why we picked David. Yeah, no, someone has to be the straight man in the in the in the pair, and that's that's me. <laughs> yeah, I'm anyway. the straight man all week. I, I can't I can't do it on the podcast. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, actually, as I learned from this book, the namesake of the guillotine, his name was Joseph Guillotin. Less boring, David. <laughs> anyway, not not guillotine, guillotin, but it was named after him, so guillotine. He didn't invent it. But someone proposed the idea to the National Assembly of which he was a part, and he sort of supported it. He was, in fact, a medical doctor, though. That is Wait, true. so it's the guillotine resolution, then? So Basically, yeah. <laughs> huh. I, who knew? Yeah. Anyway. Wait, he, so, he, wait did he, he said, like, I'm going to put my stamp on that because that's, that's actually something that's worth noting. The point of the guillotine, like a lot of different other things that were created during the French Revolution, was to be a more rational means of accomplishing yeah. the goal. I should be playing the sound effect. There we Please, go. But we, can we so, so basically, it's, <laughs> no, I'm gonna. But the idea was that it was a less painful, quicker, yeah, really more. I, I think you know to describe it sort of pejoratively, a more sterile, yeah, way yes. of executing somebody. Which yeah. of course, there's real reasons why you don't want to do that. You know, you want a death penalty to be fairly heinous. So that you don't use it often. I don't mean cruel and unusual punishment. People can take that totally the wrong way, I'm sure. You know, that we should make criminals suffer, <laughs> so on and so forth. But, yeah. but you, you don't want it to be something that is clinical. Yeah, you don't you want, want it to be to feel... aware that what you're causing is death. Yeah, you don't, you don't want it to feel, well, I guess this is sort of a pun, but bloodless, so to speak. And, you know... Oh, it was far from bloodless and guillotine. Right. Yeah. It, oh, my gosh. All right. Anyway... I think that the part of the sort of detachment that you're getting at is probably why they felt so comfortable <laughs> sentencing people to the guillotine. And that's, yeah, that, that's a negative yeah. side effect of it. To be fair... It's easy. You, I, you I mean, if, if, you're, still... if you're a hedgeman that has an axe yeah. and, and you have to swing that, I feel like it's a lot harder to make yourself actually swing that axe than it is to pull a lever. Yes, that's true. The, the downside there is very often executions by axe weren't particularly yeah we're, i'm not we're not quick. proponents of execution um, by axe here at yeah. the lex rex instant <laughs> so sometimes it took far too many swipes to actually you know finish the job and yeah that's we're not painful. i'm not saying that execution um. by axe is better i'm saying that as yeah. the rough equivalent yeah something where you have to look the person in the eye and you have to you know actually Dude, this yeah, is getting really know, gruesome. Well, you, uh, we, you feel, let's, you, let's you move feel on. The, let's talk about the Articles of Confederation. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, right. So anyway, to, to return to, the, to the, the point here, we're now going to look in the, the next few episodes at how America moved on from its sort of first failed attempt versus how France did. And, you know, it went, I think we can say pretty conclusively, a lot better in America. And with that, let's get into... Was it what? How did that even connect? I don't understand. Oh, that's what, showing how it didn't go better in in France. If you say so. Anyway, <laughs> so we're gonna look. We're not gonna talk about the Constitution as a whole. That's too big of a topic for one thing and for another. We have to save some material for the future. Yeah. 
but this, we're gonna look. this podcast is about the Constitution, so right. every episode's about that. That's yeah, in <laughs> some sense, in some way or other. Anyway, yeah. but we did want to highlight a few specific areas, and the first and probably the most obvious is going to be in the way. These are the ways that the Constitution improved upon the Articles of Confederation. Just to clarify, now yeah. I, I do want to. So do you want to jump straight into the ways it improved? I wanted to say, you know, sort of what they were tasked with doing at the Constitutional Convention. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so this is from, this is actually the resolution that was passed, and it said, The Articles of Confederation ought to be so corrected and enlarged as to accomplish the objects proposed in their institution, namely, common defense, security of liberty, and general welfare. So the purpose of the Constitution is to more effectively do the same stuff the Articles of Confederation was supposed to do. Yeah. Specifically, the three things it did very badly were common defense. So what is that? That's like, that's probably referring most specifically to Shea's Rebellion, but yeah. also the possibility of foreign war, also the possibility of, of civil or internal war. Right. Because there were a lot of disagreements between states and they weren't entirely sure how those were going to end. You know, not to say that we managed to avert that under the Constitution, but... We probably we managed for to delay a, it a, a good bit. long while. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we uh, definitely delayed it. Yeah, that may not be the best effect, but anyway, <laughs> we'll get into the, the better effects here. So, yeah. security of liberty is another one. So, what does that mean? Well, that means that not just having liberties, but having liberties that you are likely to keep. Yeah. Because a lot of the value of liberty is that you can invest on it, right? Mm-hmm. You know that the way things are today. They will continue to largely be like that tomorrow, or at least continue in the same direction, such that you can make decisions about your life without worrying they're going to be totally upset by huge changes in your circumstances. So that's security of liberty, not just liberty itself. And then lastly, general welfare. What does that mean? That mean welfare payments? Yeah, I think so, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, so the I'm, new constitution is sure, better at, yeah. at welfare? Yes. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> oh, <laughs> General welfare is just sort of a catch-all phrase. It means, so here's two specific things we wanted to do. Better defend, uh, you defend everybody, defend all the states in the union, better secure the liberty of the people of those states and of the states themselves, and then just sort of generally work better. Yeah. Work toward the the welfare of its members. And, you know, I think you you see an echo of that in the preamble of the Constitution itself in order to form a more, what, perfect union. So it's, you know, improving the existing thing. That's exactly right. So, you know, often accused of sort of throwing out the Articles of Confederation, which is true. Structurally, they did throw out the Articles of Confederation. But it's not just, you know, a replacement with a totally new different system, the way that we got in France. It's trying to accomplish the same aims and objectives of the Articles of Confederation. So uh, here we go. Here's another resolution. Resolve that the Articles of Confederation ought to be revised and amended. So as Torrent, I'm sorry. I, put, I didn't put a space there. I put Torrender. So as to render the government of the United States adequate to the exigencies, the preservation, and the prosperity of the Union. Sort of a, a different way of saying the same three things. So exigencies, yeah. that means unexpected circumstances. Emergencies, that'd be the common defense one that we talked about right. in the last group. Uh, we talked about this a lot last week, how emergency powers are kind of BS. Because our Constitution was made to be able to deal with emergencies. You shouldn't just say that state of emergency now, so we're suspending the, the common social order, like the <clears throat> Korematsu decision did. So okay. next we've got the preservation. That'd be the same as securing liberty, a preservation of what we have. And then prosperity of the union. So general welfare, again, prosperity, just making sure everybody does well. That's probably most specifically targeted at financial matters. So the fact that you, you can't fund 
the government under the Articles of Confederation. You can't get foreign countries to invest in you. The national government has no credit under the Articles of Confederation. So I think that probably general welfare and prosperity of the Union have to do with that. So those yeah. are the goals. Now, how does it do it? Well, first, probably most obvious way, because we, we really hammered this pretty hard when we talked specifically about the Articles of Confederation, there was no actual executive under the Articles of Confederation. It was, you know, sort of executive In fact, powers. there weren't even three branches of government. No, true. Basically, there just weren't one. really any branches. Yeah. Articles of Confederation is about Congress. Yeah, there was just the government, and it was essentially Congress, yeah. But very yeah. different than our Congress. We'll get to that later. So, yeah, so separation of powers ends up being a huge feature of our Constitution. Yeah. And sort of the motivating factor for that is the need for an executive. Right. But the reason they probably didn't want an executive to begin with, they were afraid of what can happen with an overly powerful executive. So how do you solve that problem? You balance powers. And one of the key ways they did that is by separating the executive from other branches of government. So we they'd seen with, a couple overly powerful executives before, hadn't they? Yes, and throughout history, like the, like the military governors of Massachusetts. You thought I was going somewhere yeah. else with that, didn't you? No, because we've talked before about <laughs> about George and his role in the whole thing. Yeah, I, George it, was a tyrant, but I, I don't think he was the one that they had centrally in mind when thinking about tyrannical executives, because he yeah. was pretty far away. You know, he yeah, was well, thousands of miles away. And it's become such a common misconception, I think, about one of the common misconceptions, I think, about the way that's taught is that, oh, you know, we decided monarchy was tyranny and monarchy is bad, blah, blah, blah. That's not at all what happened, like, no. up to and including the fact that we seriously considered having a king in yeah. the U.S. In fact, they begged uh, Washington to be king. More or less, they even you know, thought about inviting like foreign nobles to come and be the king of America like that. You know, anyway, one thing that is probably the least new thing in American politics is that everybody hates Congress. Everybody hated the Congress <laughs> even during the War of Independence. Everybody yeah. hated the Congress during our early American Republic. They always hated them. And people always say, you know, we really like this one guy in Back then, it was Washington, pretty much yeah. like 99% of the population agreed that he was the guy that should do it. Everybody right. said, you ought to just take over. You ought to make yourself emperor like Napoleon did over in France, although that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> but what, spo yeah, spoiler alert <laughs> for the next episode about France. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, all that to say. It was, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great letter Washington has where he talks about that. You know, he responds to somebody who was urging him to do it. And he's just like, I don't know where these rumors started that I would have any interest in this. I don't know what I've done that would lead you to believe that I would do that. Please never mention this again. I'm going to be forced to punish you. <laughs> anyway. One of his soldiers. That's, you know, yeah. you can punish soldiers. That's, it's not just him. Yeah, not just like a random guy that he was people. threatening to, yeah, to come over and, yeah. and ground or something. But anyway, all that to say, the issue was never about kings just being sort of innately powerful executives. That's That wasn't what it was about. It was about specific forms of tyranny. Anyway, the problem is so you, you need an executive. How yeah. will the executive help with the problems in the Articles of Confederation? Well, for one thing, you have a guy who's responsible for a lot of things that would otherwise have required what was it, you know, a supermajority of states, generally speaking, to get a lot of important stuff done, yeah. you know. And even then, who implements it? You know, the, the, it's pretty right. much the state executives that have to cooperate to implement right. it. Yeah, and, you know, we, we highlighted specifically the issue of the states in general had to approve 
any given state receiving an ambassador from a foreign country. And there was no one else who could do it because there wasn't a federal executive of any kind. States had to be the ones to conduct foreign relations, but they needed the approval of all the states to do so. That's not the way it works under the Constitution. Under the Constitution, they also had that really Byzantine way of commanding the armed forces under the Mm -hmm. Articles of Confederation. So putting it under one guy makes a lot more sense. And you actually, the proof of the concept ends up being proven right away because the Whiskey Rebellion, in many respects similar to Shay's Rebellion, ends up ending totally differently where Washington is able to actually do something about it. Right. And that's, you know, that's an important thing to be able to do to, you know, respond to. It doesn't make you, you know, you don't look real good in front of the other countries at the playground when (laughs) you are, when you have insurrections and uprisings in your country and everybody just kind of sits there and lets them happen. Right. Yeah, it's not a good look. And that's not the only no. reason it's important. It's not just about showing off and looking good. It's also, you know, you don't <laughs> not even primarily about that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't necessarily want any given single unpopular decision in your country to result in a massive like armed rebellion. You know, that's that's not an ideal yeah. state of affairs. Yeah. And, and they point out because I guess I'm jumping ahead here a little. We want to. Is that enough about the executive? Do we want to move on? I to, think so. We're we're trying to keep a quicker pace. So yeah, I think yeah. we can wrap. But that I, up. I guess sort of the takeaway from that. People like to complain about the increase of the power of the presidency, and we're definitely with them to a point. Lex yeah. Rex Institute is with them to a point. President should never be exercising legislative or judicial authority. We think that right. it is totally out of balance for him to do that. That's a violation of separation of powers, and we will absolutely litigate those issues. President ought to be exercising executive powers. Exactly. And all too often they do not do that. Yeah. So we're in favor of a robust presidency in terms of executive powers. We just don't think that he should take other people's powers because we the people have not delegated those powers to them. Right. Yeah. You know, within the bounds assigned, we want every aspect of the government to be as vigorous as it wants to be, as vigorous as it can be in many instances. But... Within those bounds, well, that's the key point. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd say as vigorous as it can be. Well, fair enough, but you know, <laughs> you you should do you the difference job of opinions. A, People have difference of opinion in Lex Rex Institute. You know, fair, David fair is enough. in favor. My, my, <laughs> my main point when I say that is you should do the job that's assigned to you, and you shouldn't be lazy about it. But you should. Yeah, that's only, absolutely true. You should. You shouldn't only just say do. some bureaucracy is going to figure it out because you know that's right. the way. Every time somebody proposes a law say, a law about what part can be on a car, all the congressmen say, well, I don't know anything about cars, but I know that we want to regulate them. You know who does know about cars? A bunch of bureaucrats. So we'll have them figure out all the details, and then they pass that legislative power off to the president. We talked about that before in our our episode on Chevron deference. I don't remember which episode number that was. Well, we've talked about uh, that several times. But anyway, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that's the power of the executive. That's sort of our takeaway from that. Don't just knee-jerk say president having power is bad. President having power is actually very good. That prevents really the worst sort of legislative tyranny that that Great Britain saw and that really ended up imposing itself upon us under Lord North, where they would just pass a series of really draconian acts. Draconian, is that a word people know? Severe. Yeah, that means severe or harsh or... Yeah, really harsh, ridiculous, overbearing acts on the the people of the United States or I guess the American colonies at the time. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't want that. Legislative tyranny is very, very bad. Anyway, next is going to be federalism, which demarcates a sphere of exclusive state power from federal power. So remember, under the Articles of Confederation, all power of the National Congress was derived from the power of the states. Right. So it, in strictest sense, it was not actually a national government. 
because it yeah. didn't have any of its own independent power derived directly from the people. It was just sort of whatever the states can agree to do. Articles of Confederation was not supreme law of the land. Right. And there were real disadvantages to that. So we're probably going to end up focusing mostly on the disadvantages today of not having a national government. But there's reciprocal disadvantages as well of having only a national government. Yeah. So federalism very delicately balances both of those things because under the Constitution, the power of the federal government is derived both from we the people ourselves and from the authority of the states, from the state legislatures. It comes from both. Yeah. So it's got to respect the authority of both. And that, that actually leads into our next advantage of the Constitution, which is bicameralism. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because, remember, bicameralism is one legislature represents the people, other represents the states. But anyway, what, what are the advantages of federalism, David? Well, for one thing, and, you know, we've talked about this issue before, but it allows for both, like, local interests to have sort of their part to play. You know, in the, the way that the Constitution is designed to work, the people of each state should have pretty, you know, extensive local determination over things that they want to be the case. Because the Constitution really doesn't afford Congress very many sort of arenas where it can make law. But it does have some, specifically where the states independently would be, you know, wouldn't have a way to resolve issues. So And, and interestingly... That the vast majority of arenas where Congress can legislate under the Constitution are the same as they were under the Articles of Confederation. There's really only two differences. One is that Congress can now regulate commerce between states because that's yeah. kind of necessary to actually have a national government, right? You right. want to make sure that there's some shared standards between all of them. And secondly, they have the power to lay taxes directly on the people. Articles of Confederation could only levy taxes against the states. The Constitution of the United States allows for income taxes directly on the people. I'm sorry, I said income taxes. No, allows for direct taxes on the people. <laughs> yeah, we needed to And those taxes, it. as we've mentioned in the past, those had to be basically what we call a head tax. Each yeah. person pays the same amount. Yeah. There was an amendment that we needed to pass before we could start taxing income. But Yeah. And the reason why it allows it to tax individuals is, again, the power of the federal government is derived from the people. So it makes good sense that it should right. be able to do that. The commerce power was sort of the controversial one. I would say that power was absolutely to be able to promote prosperity, you know, general welfare. Yeah. Because you need to be able to coordinate commercial activity between yeah. different states. Yeah. You know, if you're in a position where, say, Pennsylvania could impose tariffs on, you know, steel from a different state or whatever... You're not you know, it's actually worse than that, David, because under the Articles of Confederation, that was basically just an agreement between the states. They were free yeah. to make other agreements if they wanted to. Right. You know, they could say they could say that Pennsylvania, uh, let's see, what borders Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia are going to wage war on New York. Yeah. We're going no, to enter an alliance true. so we can wage war on New York. And they, they're allowed to do that. That's not prohibited. I right. mean, I guess there's there are conditions in the Articles of Confederation about when you, when can, you can declare, declare war. a war. Yeah. But, but, so, there, but, but even then, there's nothing that's not yeah. binding. Yeah, there, there's certainly no mechanism by which you could say, you know what, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you right. know, uh, they could just decide to do it, and then everyone else could just sort of say, well, we think you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so that's you can see how that would be a very unstable system because it happens yeah. very commonly that states do not agree. Right. 
So what do you do when you resolve differences between states? And this is where our sort of our next one comes in, and that's going to be bicameralism. Yeah. And this, this is also, we've talked about this before too, but there's a direct link between the bicameral system. You know, that means two houses for those, you know, who aren't uh, brushed up on their, I want to say Latin. Yes, Latin. It doesn't mean two um, cameras? No, because... Uh, or two camels? Camera, in, as in a photo camera, actually means chamber. That's what the, the root word is. It's like, you know, a chamber where... But the before we amended the Constitution again and changed the way the Senate was elected, it was very clear how the House of Representatives was representing the interest of the people and the Senate represented the interests of the states because the state legislatures directly appointed senators. Now we elect and, them and both. Still, and you do still get some of that, even under the, the yeah. present system modified by the 17th Amendment, because remember, under the Articles of Confederation, it was basically one state, one vote. You know, they right. could send delegates, but each state had the same representation. Obviously a pretty bad system if you're trying to make any kind of decision that's going to be for the whole of the American people, because yeah. those states are very different sizes. Yes. But it's also a horrible idea to just have proportional representation, because that doesn't give the states any voice or any say in government, which means you just have a national government at that point. There's no actual state government that, that's closer to the people and, and represents the needs of the people in that area more effectively. Yeah. So what we end up getting is a bicameral legislature where you know, even today, two senators per state, representatives based on population. Works yeah. pretty well. Makes sure yeah. that both, both kinds of entities are represented in our government. Yeah, and it gives you, I think, even just sort of on the practical level, we've been talking, that's a bit about sort of the theoretical side, which is very important, but even just sort of pragmatically speaking, one of the issues with the Articles of Confederation is unless, you know, something was absolutely uncontroversial, you were basically never actually going to be able to pass legislation because it yeah. required the majority of states to endorse it. And in some instances, a supermajority of states. And it's also, you know, one of the real things that you'll see that our Constitution is on guard for is the idea of tyranny of the majority. Yeah. We believe that rights should be protected even if the majority of people want to take them away from you. Exactly. The Articles of Confederation had a real tendency toward tyranny of the majority. And, and that yep. was exactly the sort of tendency that could very easily result in civil wars. Because right. if you got seven of 13 states saying something, even if they're the smallest seven, that might be, you know, I don't know the numbers, but what? That might be like 25% of the population, perhaps even less. Could be, yeah, easily. Deciding what's going to go for everybody else. Right. That's obviously going to result either in some members leaving the union or worse in a civil war. Those are pretty yeah. much the only consequences that you'll get from that. Yeah. So our constitution, by having a bicameral legislature, directly avoids this tyranny of the majority issue. Right. And so you get on the one hand, it is possible to make decisions that the majority of the people want, even if the majority of the states are, you know, maybe iffy about it. But on the other hand, it's not just dead easy to pass anything that you can get a bare majority to agree to on a given day. And right. that's, I think, one of the genius you know, that, That's the Washington the story to Jefferson. Is why why yeah. do you pour your, your tea into your saucer? Why to cool it? Exactly. Yeah. Passing through two different deliberative bodies, even, you know, regardless of what they are, is often a good way to prevent, you know, just sort of some harebrained scheme from winning the day. Yeah. But particularly when they represent different interests and do it as elegantly, in my opinion, at least, as yeah. they do in the Constitution. You know, we're ideologues here. We definitely <laughs> believe in, in we, we do like purity of principle. You yeah. know, we, yeah. if, if you're listening to this and you're saying that sounds like a lot of compromise and you don't really like compromise, it doesn't really sit well with you. We get it. 
Believe right. me. Mm-hmm. We're of a similar disposition to that. But also, please trust me on this one, it's way better to have a government that's the result of compromise. <laughs> because even a great yeah. idea implemented too quickly against the will of 49% of the population is yeah. very, very quickly going to destabilize your society. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's no question about that. And, you know, you get ways of sort of ensuring that decisions are made that are made have at least reasonable consensus about them under yeah. the co- And, the and it's, they're usually going to be, you know, moderated versions of things. They're usually not going to be the fullest expression of whatever idea it was. They're going to have give and take. Yeah. That really is a good thing. You want slow change. That's Edmund Burke again. Read Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, lexrex.org slash store. But that's really <laughs> one of his m- main points in that is the idea of slow and moderate progress. You yeah. know, it, it's he, he's sort of known as the father of conservatism and I think conservatives today could do well to learn from him yeah. because he, he's all about progress. You know, he's a progressive in the strictest sense, the old sense of the word. Yeah. But he doesn't believe that you ought to throw out everything and replace it with something that you made up. Yeah. And I think the key element, both in his mind and, and in large part in, in mine as well, is you want to keep contact with the past in some way. Keep contact because, you know, the past is going to be basically your touchstone. That's what you've actually yeah. experienced. And so you need to keep in contact with that so you understand how the changes you're implementing actually work before you just change everything. And if it fails, it's going to fail spectacularly. It's like Barry Goldwater's definition of a liberal. I don't think I know that one. Oh, it's a liberal is somebody who wants to try something that has never worked before. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> not not saying our opinion on that, but that's sort of where he's going with it. You know, Edmund yeah. Burke is a conservative, so right. that that's something we can talk about. But you know, well, one of the points that he makes, a very salient point, I think, is sure, like he's talking to the French here, who obviously didn't like their king too much, didn't like the past few generations of leadership, so they were kind of inclined to throw it out. But his point was, if you don't like the last several generations of leadership, just go back further. <laughs> Yeah. They'll, they'll have all the more the pomp and importance in your imagination because no one's met them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I like it. He's very utilitarian about it, but he's right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that's, a, that's sort of a tangent. But uh, we, yeah. we had one last point we wanted to talk about with respect to the Constitution's corrections of the Articles of Confederation, and that is the idea of enumerated powers. Yeah. And this is... We harp on this all the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this briefly last time when we talked about Articles of Confederation. But under the Articles of Confederation, the powers of Congress were theoretically unlimited. Yeah. It could do basically, within you know some very loose limits, but it could do basically whatever it wanted as long as the majority of the states agreed to it. Yeah. That's not true under the Constitution, because under the Constitution, the only powers that any entity in government has are those that are mentioned by name in that document. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a few important things to note about that. One is that I think that's a direct consequence of the fact that, as you mentioned, the Articles of Confederation didn't propose that this national government derived its authority from the people. Yeah. I think it's clearly recognized if you're getting power from someone granting it to you in, you know, in a very concrete way, a person, a group of people doing it, then yeah, you get that it's only what they tell you you can do with it, that is legitimate as opposed to the Articles of confederation it's just sort of well we know the states have certain powers and then whatever they can agree to among themselves will do because you know that's the whole design here you don't have that sort of innate break on it so they fixed it 
Turns out that our, <laughs> our framers were pretty good constitutional mechanics. They were yeah. able to make a system that worked, and that's the Constitution we have today. Oh, one last point I wanted to mention is the appropriation of new lands for states. Uh, mm -hmm. Alexander Hamilton goes on at great length about this in Federalists. I believe it's six, seven, and eight, but it might be seven, eight, and nine. I'm pretty bad with numbers. Uh, but <laughs> he, he goes on about this, talking about how the acquisition of new land is absolutely ripe for conflict under the Articles of Confederation because it's not... The states can just say this new land is ours now. You know, if, they, yeah. if they border it and they occupy it, they can say it's theirs. This was remedied under the Constitution because there's explicit means by which new territory is adopted under the Union and under which states can become states or, or appropriate new territory. So, yeah, that's another thing that was fixed. That pretty much concludes what I have to say about the way, I mean, there's a lot more we could talk yeah. about, but, but we, we do have a time limit. Punchy. We're not yeah. using metric hours. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the Constitution and how it improves upon the Articles of Confederation. Yeah. Anything else, David? I, I think one thing I, I meant to bring up earlier when we were talking about the executive, and I think it, it bears mentioning, is when you have a government that has basically only a legislature or a very overpowerful legislature, no one is around to tell them when something is unconstitutional, however defined in that that's a good system. Point. And, you know, this is what that's basically the, the that, function. That is the problem in Great yeah. Britain. Yeah. I mean, that, they had a civil war over that. Right. And when is, when the king had I mean, that wasn't of, that was the king. But yeah, <laughs> fair. <laughs> but, you know, legislature thought it was their job to tell him he was acting unconstitutionally. And he said, right. you can't tell me that. So, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in the in the sort of relatively recent past, that was sort of the understood function of most monarchs in constitutional monarchies. They didn't yes. really take a lot of active part, but they were around to tell the legislature when it was overstepping its bounds. You need somebody. Cromwell like did a lot of that, even though he wasn't a monarch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you need you need somebody like that, and you know that's a lot of what the president is for. That's why you know strong veto powers are a good thing. Yeah. All right, gather around, kids. It's time for everybody's favorite and most exciting section of this podcast, <laughs> Captain Kangaroo Court, where we look at some of the ridiculous things that have been done, either in courts or at least in the law. And or tangentially related to the law, or tangentially related <laughs> to the law, and talk about those. You know, kids, it's it's a great learning opportunity and your favorite show on the internets. So yeah, it's, it's George Bush's <laughs> internets plural. So, anyway, did he actually Captain say, Kangaroo Court? Did he say that? I don't remember that. Yeah, he said I've heard rumors on the internets. Huh. I just I always assumed that was something that just sort of developed as a, sort of an organic irony. Um, no, no, that was a Bushism. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You learn something every day. You, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, David, what have we got today for Captain Kangaroo Court? Well, as promised last week, we are going to talk about the roving judge gang of Indiana. Oh, yes. The roving judge gang. Yeah. And so. And I, I've got one, David. I actually surprised. I've brought one, too. Oh. Also about a, a weird judge. So. Oh, we're staying true to the spirit of Captain Kangaroo Court for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyway, so what I did is I found the NPR article reporting on this. It's from 2019, and we'll start just by reading the headline. Three Indiana, Less boring, David. Three Indiana judges suspended after White Castle brawl that left two of them wounded. And some of these details I had forgotten. Um, but anyway, so... Were well, they brawling with each other or brawling with somebody else? No, brawling, brawling with somebody else. But that's what I thought. Yeah, they yeah. were. Assault, somebody was assaulted by judges. 
Yes. It, well, it, it, you know, inebriated there, judges, right? There, there's a, there's a little bit of back and forth here and, you know, who escalated and who, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it here. Here's a few things to, to note. First of all, so they were in town for some kind of judicial conference, right? And it, it, it's the day before it actually begins. They're out, you know, celebrating. Generally, judicial conferences are fairly sedate affairs. You, you would guys. think. Uh, you would these, think. They're not generally the sort of event where you have, where, you know, everybody boards up their windows beforehand. It, that's <laughs> When you hear the judges are in town, you, you don't think there's going to be a lot of property damage and so on and so forth. Yeah. I'm not sure if you guys knew that, but that's <laughs> fun anyway. fact. Uh, but evidently, you know, a group of these judges in town decided to let their hair down a bit and, you know, have some drinks. But this group took it quite, go a, bit to White further than that. quite a bit further than that for these three specific judges. Uh, so this is another thing I had forgotten. They started by trying to go to a strip club called the Red Garter at 3 a.m. And they found it mm. closed. So they're Wasn't... already up past the strip clubs. So that's Are all, all these judges men? No, it's two men and a oh. woman. Two men and a woman. All right. So that's... That was, you know, make of that what you will, I guess. But. At least it, they're equal opportunity offenders. Yeah. So having failed to get into this strip club, they decide to do the logical thing and go to White Castle. Um, uh -huh. So they go to White Castle and there in the parking lot, one of the judges, it's the woman. And <laughs> anyway, I, I, I guess we'll, we'll probably leave the names out of it. No need to. Yeah, you're imagining. So that, I, I, I want to make sure everybody has the right mental picture here. They're wearing yeah. the robes the whole time. Right. And some of them probably have the, the wigs with the, the curls or no. No, but I prefer it, and so we'll we'll go on that assumption. Yeah, we don't but, actually do that in America. Another fun fact: actually, the only yeah. place that does require that now is Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, yeah. which we can get into another time. But <laughs> probably didn't have those. But we're going to imagine them with the wigs, okay? And they're they're each carrying a gavel. Sure. Yeah, that's if that helps you uh, picture this, then fine. But anyway, yeah. So the three of them clearly, you know, inebriated in this fast food parking lot. When one of them White Castle, not just yeah. fast food, it's White Castle. That's that's true. It's Which is not in California. I've not had it, but I understand the reputation is. I've been there well. once, and the burgers looked kind of gross to me. I know a lot of people like them. They're very greasy. They're very sort of small, and it's a very particular thing. I know some people are fanatically they're, they're, loyal to them. Um, but they're kind of regarded as you know bottom shelf fast yeah, food. Even if they're not, you know they might taste good. But. Yeah, it's not high quality meat, and I didn't have it in me to actually try the burgers. I got like a chicken sandwich when I was there, was there and it was very mediocre. So anyway, that's, oh my that's gosh, my, David, that's really? My... You went to White Castle? You didn't get one of the burgers? No, it it I didn't think my stomach could handle it. Wait but... a second. Wait a second. Shame. <laughs> Are you gonna play the? Shame. Oh, oh Shame. okay. All right. I thought you were gonna. I yeah. thought you were going to play the guillotine sound effect and imply that I deserve the death penalty for that, but... All right, well, okay, that's... You know, debatably, it's shameful to eat them, but we'll leave that aside. Um, Not if you're going to White Castle, though. Well, I didn't, you know... We're, we're spending too much time on this. Anyways, they're in White yes. Castle. They're in White Castle parking lot, and one of them, and now, interestingly, I had forgotten this, it's the woman, quote, raised a middle finger at two men yelling from a passing SUV. And uh -huh. I had also forgotten this detail. Insulting their wigs? Probably. We can assume that. Yeah. Uh, not actually, but we'll pretend. I had forgotten this detail. It so she ends... finds them in contempt of court, right? Or at least in contempt of those judges. <laughs> yeah, in contempt of their personal authority. Uh-huh. But I had forgotten this, too. It ends with one of the judges being shot by one of these men. Um, That's right. I had completely yeah. forgotten about this. <laughs> um, Boy, can you imagine that guy when he found out the one that person he'd shot was a judge? Gosh. Uh, it well, must have been horrifying. But... 
Uh, so, you know, absolute chaos. I can't even... Th- th- we've talked about this before. When, when you first told me about this, we had a long conversation about this. And I said, I couldn't think of anyone except... And, you know, you corrected me on this point. We'll get to that in a minute. I said, I can't think of anyone more sort of ill-fitting for this kind of story, more shocking that a judge would do this. And I think I said, except for maybe a senator. But you correctly pointed out, it's actually much easier to imagine senators doing this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, way judges, easier. You know, because <laughs> you, you, get, you yeah. get some of these senators, you know, uh, like a certain, um, you know, let's say, Schmed Schmedity, who get into sort of hijinks. <laughs> yeah, but as, as I said, initially I thought maybe a pastor, but then I thought about it, anybody can be a pastor. You know, not, not all <laughs> denominations require you... You would have a degree to do that, you know, yeah, yeah, that you'd be ordained. Anybody can be a pastor. There's some basic threshold things you have to satisfy to be a judge. You know, there's a lot of, the very least, there's a lot of hurdles you have to jump through. You have to have at some point organized your life so that you have fairly meticulous habits. You at least got through law school and passed the bar and presumably, you know, were at least least, (laughs) least a pretty decent lawyer for an extended period of time. Likely, at least. Or at least co- convinced a lot of people well, that, that you were you a pretty were. decent yeah. lawyer for uh-huh. a couple decades. <laughs> right. And even, yeah, even if that's all a sham, it's one that would take a lot it of takes discipline effort to, to maintain. Do yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, and so, yeah, you know, it's hard to think of more unjudge-like, con- uh, you know, even there's the expression, sober as a judge. Evidently not. Um, <laughs> not a White Castle judge, though. No, not not, not at an Indiana White Castle. And uh, the Indiana judiciary agreed with that, apparently, because the, the Indiana Supreme Court... I think they disbarred them all, didn't they? They at least suspended them. But the Indiana Supreme Court said that they, quote, discredited the entire Indiana judiciary, which, yeah, that, that seems about right, by uh-huh. that's, uh, that's having right. engaged in judicial misconduct by appearing in public in an intoxicated state and behaving in an injudicious manner. <laughs> Which, you know, that's injudicious. Another, yeah, you, you, we get the word judicious from right, judge. Just from like, that's, judge, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, I've got another one with the crazy judge. Uh-huh. Wait, is that it? Or? Yeah, I think basically. Okay. I wanted to say uh, we we talked about this last time. I think at some point we should try to put out a T-shirt that has something to do with the the judge gang. I'm I'm on record we as should. endorsing that. I'd probably buy one if we did it. Yeah, we should. If somebody wants to make a design and submit that to us, we <laughs> yeah, we'll, and we'll, we'll have a contest. Yeah. You know, winner gets. Winner guy, I don't know what the a winner would get. A book and, like, and one of the t-shirts when we print them, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, some, it's a $30 value, yours for <laughs> spending hours of time creating yeah. a logo. Okay, <laughs> this is actually something that our law firm received okay. a couple years back. This is also from 2019. Not a great year for judges, apparently. <laughs> this is from yeah. a judge who is no longer sitting on the bench. She was actually removed from the bench subsequent to this. But this is the craziest... So. You submit most filings to the court electronically nowadays. And mm-hmm. if there's some kind of defect in the filing, like maybe it has, says the wrong court name or it doesn't any of the local rules it doesn't follow. Maybe the font's too big or you know, things like that. Judges reserve the right to kick it, reject that, and then make you refile it. It's not a big deal when it happens. It happens a lot. Um, but usually they give a reason why something is rejected. And this was... This is a rejection notice that we received from a particular judge who, whose name will not be mentioned. Yeah. But what it says is the electronic order that you uploaded on 4-12-2019, and then lists the case number, has been rejected. The reasons for rejecting is slash are as follows. Formatting errors. And then it says, please see the court's website under judges tab. Then, and then it says the judge's name. That instruction slash procedures tab for sample pleadings with the correct format and preferred content 
that incorporate the requirements in the LBR and court manual. So it's saying, you know, look at the local rules, look at this judge's particular rules that apply just to this particular judge and see what she wants you to do. Well, then they're also very helpful because they list the specific problems that we had. Uh -huh. Then it says, please use only one font, Arial numbers and Times New Roman text. Left margin <laughs> equals one inch. Uh -huh. What that's referring to is the numbers, you go down the side of the page, the number of the, the lines in a document. Yeah, so you can We were using the court's later. form. Yeah. <laughs> we did not change the font in that. That's the form the court requires. In fact, I've always hated that, for, that form, specifically for that reason, is that it's got two different fonts. But it's, we, we're not allowed to use a different form from that. So anyway, yeah. next, that's not the more egregious thing here. Here's the one that I really want to draw your attention to. Plain English only. No antiquated language. Right, uh-huh. Maybe you guys don't like it when lawyers use antiquated language. I know a lot of people don't. So what are the examples of antiquated language that she uses? Hereby, uh -huh. herein, uh -huh. adjudged, whereas, therefore, upon, <laughs> upon? shall be and oh hereby is. You've got to be kidding me. Upon, upon really. Therefore. Okay, yeah. Like, you know, some of those I can, you know, I, I putting myself in the shoes of someone who's very unfamiliar with this sort of world, I could say, oh, yeah, you know, hereby sounds sort of stuffy and herein, yeah. Therefore and upon are like, that's like a, probably like a fifth grade vocabulary word. I think therefore upon or, is like, you know, second grade, six maybe. year old. Yeah. Like, that's, like upon. Yeah. Is, wow. That's one of the most basic ones. I but guess. Anyway. What should we have said? Just well, so what would you use instead of upon? Like if we weren't using that word, what would you use? You know, this this was based upon the ruling in X, Y, Z. What would you say? I instead? guess just on based on this was based on. Yeah, that's not. Technically correct because it's no. not like on it, you know. It's, I, it's yeah, based no, upon no, no, no. it. That's, but and like you know, I and then that's actually that's the broader point here is there's a reason why lawyers use yeah. legalese, and it's not just so that things are hard to read and complicated. Most <laughs> of these words are logical positional words, right? And they're very necessary when you're trying to juxtapose one concept against another. You know, you might say, well, what what were the ones she didn't like? Herein, here herein. By. Yeah. So we might refer to something as occurring herein because it's a very long description, right? Yeah. Whatever the document is. So, you know, the one herein referred to is what you would say instead of saying the name of the document again, because you got to be specific in each reference. You can't yeah. just use short names for things unless you've defined them as short names. So that's, you know, that sort of helps yeah, you to shorten you, that. You could, A lot of them are say, logical positional words. Yeah, you could say, I guess, the thing referred to in here and by here we mean this document you're currently reading. <laughs> or we could say this there, you yeah. know, or the, that there, rather. The, it's the, it, as, as referred to in that there motion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess if, you're, if your options are you sound a little bit sort of uptight and old fashioned or you sound like Jed Clampett, you should probably have to sound a little bit stuffy. Yeah, so this, this was the craziest rejection notice I've ever received. I actually had it framed, and I'm going to put it up on the... Well, I'm actually... That, that's a lie. I haven't gotten it framed yet. I've been meaning to get it framed there since this happened. I'm going to get it framed. I'm going to put it up on the wall because it's one of my favorite things I've ever gotten. I think it's absolutely yeah. hilarious. That and I'm really sense. glad we're doing Captain Kangaroo Court because I can talk about it. But a little bit more yeah. about this judge. So mm -hmm. you guys may know my dad's a lawyer. Uh, he, he, that's, that's the other, the Haber Bush LLP practice. That, that's his practice. Uh, and this was a motion that was submitted from that firm. Mm -hmm. So a, a past case that we had was in front of this same judge. And granted, our, our client was kind of a crook. We didn't know that when we took him on initially, but he was not the greatest guy. He was kind of dishonest. This judge hated him, yeah. hated him with a passion. 
and didn't want to give him his legal due, you know, what he what she was legally required to give him because she disliked him personally, which is judicial misconduct of the highest order. Oh, yeah. Really glad she's been removed from the bench now. She was a pretty <laughs> terrible judge. Uh, that's actually after she got removed from the bench. She had the gall to send us an advertisement in the mail saying hire her as a mediator. I remember you're not a judge you anymore. You can still this. mediate stuff. I remember you telling me about this. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that was that same lady. <laughs> yeah, we saved that, too. I'm going to get that frame, too. There but, you go. Yeah. Um, Anyway, in this, this case, our client's kind of a crook. She doesn't like him. She's really, really mad at him one day. And, she's, and, and I forget what's happened. I don't remember all the details. But she says, I'm going to sanction your client to my dad. My dad's at the hearing. Mm-hmm. My dad says, well, look at the statute. The statute says there's no legal authority to sanction my client. She's like, I'm going to sanction your client anyway. And my dad, you literally can't <laughs> do that. You don't have the authority to do that as a judge. She fumes off of the bench, leaves, goes into her chambers without saying anything. And everybody just waits there for about 20 <laughs> minutes until she comes back out, goes back behind the bench, sits down, still fuming, you know, kind of throws herself down in her chair and says, I just read the statute and it says that I can't sanction your client, but it does say right here that I can sanction you talking to my dad. You know, you can sanction the lawyer on uh-huh. behalf of the client. My dad looks her square in the eye and he says, yeah, that's true. You have authority to sanction me if you want to do that. She says, but I don't have any grounds to sanction you. (laughs) He says, yeah, that's also true. And she says, so you can pick. I'm going to sanction you or I'm going to sanction your client. My dad says, well, you have legal authority to sanction me. You don't have legal authority to sanction my client. You got to sanction me. Uh She sanctions every lawyer in the firm. Wow. Yeah. If that isn't uh, a kangaroo court, I don't know what is. Yeah. And that's not probably quite as you know to use the the same sort of quasi pun injudicious as the uh the drunken judges roaming around getting into gunfights no not quite but, but it is it's from the bench which i feel pretty, adds something yeah that's pretty close <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous you know you're just i'm gonna hit somebody <laughs> it's gotta be somebody yeah somebody's gotta pay Blatantly says, I have no grounds to sanction you. And he says, yeah, that's true. She says, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, yeah. blatantly doing something she admits she has no grounds for doing. That's Yeah, well, someone had to All answer right. for her frustration and anger in that moment. <laughs> I guess. You guys may think judges are bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> Most judges are not like this. Yeah. And the ones that are do get removed from the bench. She eventually got a very high profile case, which I won't mention. That sort of put more of a public spotlight on her. Uh-huh. And that's what ended up getting her removed from the bench. But. Hmm. We, we all laughed when we saw that case was going to be in front of her because it's like, ah, yeah, that guy's not getting a fair trial. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right. We, I think we're actually a bit over time, so we're probably going to have to call it there. Anyway, kids, that's all for Captain Kangaroo Court. We hope that you've learned a lot about our <laughs> judicial system and the way that judicial officers behave yeah. or rather shouldn't misbehave. Yeah. you know we'll see you all again next week on our next episode of captain kangaroo court if you do have submissions for that you can send them to info at lexrex.org that's i-n-f-o at l-e-x-r-e-x dot org yeah and we we have received some submissions we're still you know we're preparing to sort through those We, we you will likely hear some of them but you know hang tight anyway thanks for listening and we hope that you'll listen again Yep, that's all for today, folks.